I'm Martine Halverson-Taylor. And I'm Curtis Schaefer. And this is Sacred and Profane, a show where we explore how religions shape us and how we shape religions. And today on the show, we're going to dive into a story about a very particular religious text that's at the center of an age-old problem, one that we will likely never resolve, how to translate. Translating well-loved texts is always a challenge. And as you and I both know, Martine, translating a text that people take to be scripture ups the stakes. It's tempting to just say the meaning of a word in one language is just the same as its counterpart in another. But the big challenge of translation is that so much is interpretation the translator's choice. So often, it's not neat and tidy. There are many ways to interpret the world, and the words we choose reflect this. Absolutely. And the way we choose to translate can have a profound effect on how people experience a text, how they find meaning, or how they find themselves in a text that they consider sacred. So here's an example. Let's take Psalm 23, one of the most recognized passages in the Bible. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. That's the passage from the King James Version, which remains a hugely influential English translation of the Christian Bible. It was a massive undertaking involving dozens of scholars who translated books from multiple ancient languages. It was first published in 1611, and it's never been out of print. Even 400 years later, people have a very emotional reaction to these particular words. For many English-speaking people, the King James Version is the Bible. My preferred translation is the New Revised Standard Version, which was published in 1989. Here's what its translation of Psalm 23 sounds like. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. So I could explain to my students why this is a better, or at least a more accurate, translation of the Hebrew. But in some ways, that's beside the point. To them, this translation, one that gets rid of the these and the thous that we just don't use anymore, sounds off. To them, it doesn't sound like the Bible. For many people reading the Bible, the King James old-fashioned language, the familiar language, seems better. It makes the text sound more ancient and maybe even a little mysterious. Yeah, that's right. So translation decisions do have an emotional impact. And sometimes even the most subtle decisions can also affect the ways we see and understand both the texts we're reading and the contemporary world. Changes in the translation of a single word 
can change the meaning of an entire passage. Which brings us to an equally well-loved passage of the Bible that has resisted tidy translation for centuries and that has a lot more at stake. It's a passage from the Song of Songs. I first fell in love with the Book of Song of Songs uh, because of its deep, rich, complex, nuanced, possible meanings. It is about a multiplicity of things. It is about, in many ways, what the reader brings to the text. That's Dr. Renita Weems, the renowned scholar of the Hebrew Bible, and she's also an ordained pastor. You want me to read it now? Yeah, that would be great if you would read it aloud. I am black and beautiful, O daughters of Jerusalem. Like the tents of Kedah, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Now, as we mentioned, this is a passage from the Song of Songs. It's a book in the Bible that stands out for a lot of reasons. First and foremost, it doesn't mention God. There is no mention, no explicit mention of God. That absolutely stands out in sacred texts, texts otherwise, books otherwise, where God or the deity is mentioned all the time. And it's about love. It is about sex and love and power. Now, some have said that it's an allegory for the love of God, and it has certainly been read that way for millennia. But it is, on an ancient and literal level, a collection of songs about earthy human love, erotic desire, and sex, about a woman who knows she's beautiful and desirable, who is very comfortable in her own skin. And given who she is and where she comes from, she is dark-skinned. A black-skinned lover, lovers, who are in love with each other, who are coquettish toward each other, who are uh, romantically involved with each other, but also whose love is elusive. It's also the only sustained piece in the Bible that is written primarily in the voice of a woman. And that is a, a rarity in scripture. It is scandalous, if you will. It is provocative. It was embarrassing in some ways, yet it was still sacred. So this passage is provocative for several reasons. On that literal level, as Dr. Weems points out, But there's another reason that people argue over this particular passage, and it has to do with a single word. It is about that vav, isn't it? That word in Hebrew is v, and it is written with a single Hebrew consonant, vav. It's a tiny conjunction, but it packs a punch because it has been translated one of two ways. 
Dr. Weems translates that word as and. I am black and beautiful, O daughters of Jerusalem. But, and this is important, in written Hebrew, the can mean and, but it can also mean but. And that's how it's translated in the King James Version, as but. Is it and, or is it but? Here, I think, is where we bring our own cultural baggage. The verb itself is neutral. It can be translated as and, and it can be translated as but. So the Bible is full of these short but meaningful descriptions, descriptions that are strung together with this same conjunction. Let's take this one from 1 Samuel 16, 12, where a young David is first described. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and withal of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. So here the King James Version is happy to translate the Hebrew conjunction the as and. That makes perfect sense looking at the Hebrew. But think for a moment about how the meaning would change if we translated it as but. He was ruddy but beautiful as if his ruddy complexion were a problem. I've never seen a description of David where that conjunction was translated as but handsome. So it's clear that translators don't see a contradiction between his coloring and his attractiveness. But the King James translators seem to imply there is a contradiction between blackness and beauty in the Song of Songs. The woman can't be both black and beautiful. She must be black but beautiful. Yes, and as we know, in English, skin tone is often linked to beauty. Think of the word fair, as in mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all. Fair has a double meaning here, as both white and beautiful. English idioms often use blackness and darkness as the metaphorical opposite of fairness. The idea that white was beautiful and black was not was already a well-worn image by Shakespeare's time. So much so that when Shakespeare wrote a series of sonnets to an anonymous woman with dark hair and olive skin, many of them boil down to, she is black but beautiful. In the old age, black was not counted fair. Or if it were, it bore not beauty's name. But now is black beauty's excessive air, and beauty slandered with a bastard shame. That cultural baggage around black skin was definitely around when the King James Version was being translated by its presumably white translators. But as Dr. Weems reminds us, there is nothing in the original Hebrew that makes that kind of cultural distinction between blackness and beauty. That is a translation decision. Clearly down through the years, and especially if you're reading something like, I guess, uh, the King James, uh, which is sacred in, in some very conservative traditions, it has been translated as but. And I think it is uh, because of translators' own assumption that anyone who is declaring that she is Black must know that that is not necessarily beautiful. And so therefore, they were translated as Black but beautiful. And I think that to choose Black but as opposed to and is a decision that one makes based on 
cultural baggage and not the Hebrew itself. So by the way, this is not a new problem. Right from the start, people argued about translating these and other well-loved poems and stories from the original Hebrew into Aramaic, into Greek, and so on. They were anxious about it because translations fundamentally change a text, and we can see that in this single word as we move from the written Hebrew into other languages. In Greek, the phrase was black and beautiful. Latin translators decided on black but beautiful. So we might be tempted to see this and translation as a more modern fix because it recognizes that blackness and beauty are not mutually exclusive. A translation that perhaps echoes the public discourse around race coming out of the civil rights movement. But Martine, doesn't that switching back and forth in the Greek and Latin versions really show that translation is something every generation has to reevaluate? Yes, and we should mention that while there were ancient translators who went with black and beautiful, there are still scholars today who translate that conjunction as but, a but that does violence. Take the Revised Standard Version, which is a popular American translation from the 1950s. I am very dark, but comely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am swarthy, because the sun has scorched me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. In this Revised Standard Version, we can also see major differences in the adjectives. And I think here we see the power of a translation to change our impression of what the text is about. We bring our identity with us, our, our experiences with us. We have also brought uh, historically down through the centuries our own racism, our own racial biases, uh, our own uh, sexist biases. As Dr. Weems shows us, it's not only that translation is power, but also translations that are not quite right, that don't capture the nuances of the original, they can have profound consequences. I, I am very clear some of these are translation uh, issues, and I hope that I'm able to bring some of the best of my own training and work. For example, in this translation here in verse 5, to be able to help my audience who oftentimes, though not exclusively, I have audiences that I tend to work with most are, are fairly conservative in their reading. And if they are those who believe that the King James, these and thou's and hitherists, that is the language of God, that it is the divine language, uh, then it, it is my task, it's my responsibility and my joy uh, to be able to help uh, them understand that these are translation issues and to be able to bring the best of my own work as a Hebrew scholar, as someone who, who uh, reads Hebrew, to bring to, to my audiences what the original Hebrew actually says or the range of meanings within the, the original Hebrew. I, I, I like to say it that way. I want them to see that this is, this is rich and nuanced and complex language. This is not narrative prose. This is poetry. 
translation can show us in ways that might surprise us not only the diversity, but the joy and the openness of the ancient world. But it can also reveal its misogyny and its prejudice. I mean, as precious as the Bible has been for someone like me, has been formative for me, been an important part of my formation, it has also bruised me. It is very much so patriarchal. It is very much so places there that are misogynistic. But there are also places I have found as a young woman who grew up in a black church tradition. I've also found some beautiful healing, transformational portions of the text. Song of Songs was certainly has been one of those particular kinds of books. For those of us who have been on the, on the margins, we have found a book that helps us to talk about race, race in the Bible, racism, and as a Black womanist scholar, also sexism. So one of our graduate students found a remarkable passage from Martin Luther King's writings, and I would love to just read it. Of course, I can't do it in his cadence, but it gets to this very question. He says, I come here tonight to plead with you. Believe in yourself and believe that you are somebody. Somebody told a lie one day. They couched it in language. They made everything black, ugly, and evil. Look in your dictionaries and see the synonyms of the word black. It's always something degrading and low and sinister. Look at the word white, and it's always something pure and high and clean. Well, I want to get that language right tonight. I want to get that language so right that everyone here will cry out, yes, I'm black, I'm proud of it, I'm black, and I'm beautiful. It is something about the perennial nature of, of, of racism and oppression. You have to have some sense of your own self-worth and your own sense of self-love to assert that. But it does help in this case for those of us who are Christian, Judeo-Christian, to have this text in front of us or as a part of our sacred tradition. As much as I am a Bible scholar and as much as I've been shaped by this text and I hold it very sacred, even if I didn't have this text, I still have had to assert and insist that blackness, that blackness is not negative, it is not pejorative, and that we are not the scum of the earth. The truth is the translation of this one conjunction is something that each generation will probably have to work out again and again. And that ambiguity offers ways for us to explore the richness and the complexity of the ancient world and ancient texts, even as it also frustrates us. As translators, we will always fight our own cultural baggage. But as Dr. Weems reminds us, acknowledging the prejudices deeply ingrained in our own language about race, about gender, is the place we have to start. It continues to matter. It continues to resonate down through the centuries, if you will. Perhaps the text would help us to interrogate our own baggage that we have brought to notions of blackness and beauty. Sacred and Profane was produced for the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Our senior producer is Emily Gaddick. 
Our program manager is Ashley Duffalo. Kelly Jones is the lab's editor. Special thanks to Ashley Tate and Helen Buckwalter for their research assistance. Today's guest is Dr. Renita Weems. You can find some of her scholarship on our website, and you can find her show, The Womanist Salon Podcast, on iTunes. Music for this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions. You can find out more about our work at religionlab.virginia.edu or by following us on Twitter at The Religion Lab.